this week. Earnings, earnings, and more earnings. Clear Channel, iHeart, among many companies tapping capital markets to repay near-term debt. LSC Communications Lenders organized as company seeks to amend credit agreement following failed merger. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Alex Brosman for Reorg in New York. Later in the episode, we'll hear from the opioid litigation coverage team at Reorg, including reporters Sasha Padbidri and Connor Skelding, and legal analyst Karen Lung. The team will discuss highlights from the opioid lawsuits, the companies impacted, and recent disclosures that have been making the news. It's Sunday, August 4th. In this earnings-heavy week, a few companies stood out with results or what they said on their calls. Ensco Rowan, now known as Valeris, in its first quarter since closing the merger, announced that the combined company burned $374.9 million of free cash flow. The company said that it has flexibility to issue both secured and guaranteed debt as it looks to proactively address its debt and cost of capital. Intelsat expects a decision from the FCC on its C-band proposal in the fall. The satellite company reported a 10.1% drop in EBITDA and a 5.3% fall in revenue. McDermott International, still dealing with its, quote, problem contracts, lowered the anticipated proceeds it expects to receive from its pipe fabrication and storage tank transactions to below $1 billion. The company also lowered full-year guidance and increased the amount of cash it expects to burn in 2019, but noted that most of the negative cash flow from operating activities had already occurred in the first half of 2019. Hornbeck said that it is having a, quote, constructive dialogue under a non-disclosure agreement with the ad hoc group of the company's notes due 2020 and 2021. The CEO said that the parties are continuing to explore various alternatives, including the potential use of limited equity. However, Hornbeck said, a discounted exchange of the company's debt for more equity is not particularly attractive to the company at present. The company continues to anticipate a second-half recovery. It was a busy week in the capital markets for our coverage universe. iHeart, Clear Channel, Mattel, and Albertsons all announced deals, according to sources. Clear Channel held a lender meeting seeking to secure a $2.2 billion credit facility comprised of a $2 billion term loan and a $200 million revolver, according to the presentation reviewed by Reorg. Combined with an additional $1.185 billion of yet-launched other secured debt and proceeds from the company's recent equity raise, total proceeds would redeem the company's 2020 and 2022 notes. Not to be outdone by its former subsidiary, iHeart sold $750 million of eight-year secured notes, which will be used to repay term loan borrowings. The two companies moved further apart as the Clear Channel filing announcing proceeds from its equity raise also disclosed that the $200 million revolving loan between two Clear Channel entities on the one hand and iHeart on the other was terminated. Albertsons announced a two-part offering including a $1.7 billion new term loan and $500 million, which was later upsized to $750 million, 
of eight and a half year unsecured notes. Proceeds from both will be used to repay existing term loans. Mattel, fresh off of a positive earnings report, sold $250 million of eight-year unsecured notes, which the company will use to retire its existing 2020 notes. This week, reorganitiated on LSC Communications. Following a failed merger with Quad Graphics and a subsequent proposed covenant amendment, a group of lenders to LSC Communications' $249 million term loan began organizing with King & Spaulding as legal advisor in order to ensure its rights are preserved under the credit agreement, Reorg reported on Wednesday. The amendment seeks to relax the consolidated leverage ratio and interest coverage charge ratio in the senior secured credit facilities. The company indicated on a lender call that a majority of the revolver lenders had already signed off on the amendment, which only requires a simple majority of the revolver and term loan combined to pass. The proposed amendment comes in the heels of revised projections in which the publishing and print services company lowered full-year EBITDA guidance by $50 million, putting it on a course to breach its current maximum leverage covenant by March 31, 2020. The company has attributed its financial difficulties to an unprecedented drop in demand for magazines, catalogs, and logistics due to digital disruption, with revenue remaining flat since 2016, while both EBITDA and cash flow have fallen. Since terminating the proposed merger amid regulatory difficulties, including a suit filed by the Department of Justice on June 20th, in which the department described the merger as combining the, quote, only two significant providers of magazine, catalog, and book printing services, the company's 8.75% secured notes have fallen 20 points, according to Trace. In addition, the term loan was quoted at 85.5 to 87.5 on the day of reporting, according to a trading desk. Describing the decision to terminate the merger, CEO Thomas J. Quinlan explained, quote, We disagree with the DOJ's conclusion regarding our transaction, especially in the context of industry trends. However, we in Quad recognize the significant additional time and resources that would be required to challenge the DOJ's complaint and have therefore decided mutually that it is in the best interests of our respective companies to terminate the merger agreement. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, on Wednesday, with Governor Ricardo Rosseo's August 2nd resignation looming, Rosseo sent to House and Senate leaders his nomination of former resident commissioner Pedro Pierluisi as Secretary of State. A special session of the legislature was opened Thursday to take up the nomination, with the House voting 26 to 21 in favor of his nomination on Friday. The Senate is not expected to vote until Wednesday of next week. U.S. House Natural Resources Committee Chairman Raul Grijalva has circulated discussion draft legislation that contains proposed amendments to PROMESA. These amendments include allowing the Puerto Rico government to cancel unsecured debt, defining essential services, creating the Office of Reconstruction Coordinator, and establishing the role of Revitalization Coordinator within the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. Governor Rosseo also announced on Wednesday afternoon that he was appointing Omar Marrero as the Commonwealth Chief Financial Officer and Executive Director of the Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, or AFAF. On Monday, PREPA Executive Director Jose Ortiz said that Puerto Rico's political crisis is harming the island's investment climate. 
but said that three of the four proponents qualified to bid for the PREPA Transmission and Distribution System concessions are still interested in pursuing the long-term contract. The PREPA chief also said other developers exploring potential investments in the island's electric power sector remain interested despite the political turmoil on the island. Over the last weekend, Governor Rosseo enacted legislative measures, including a joint resolution that would deposit $1.4 billion from the general fund in a pension trust for government employees. And turning to in-court activity, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit denied a petition by several bond insurers for rehearing and a petition for rehearing on banc regarding the court's March 26th special revenue ruling in which it concludes that sections 928A and 922D of the Bankruptcy Code permit, but do not require, continued payment during the pendency of the bankruptcy proceedings. Notably, the order included a sharp dissent from Judge Sandra Lynch, who urged further review by the First Circuit or the U.S. Supreme Court. Other top stories this week were, PG&E defends political contributions, dividends, strongly disagrees with Wall Street Journal article suggesting it knew of transmission line weakness that caused campfire. Middle market new coverage. NPC International first lien lenders organize with Jones Day amid liquidity covenant pressure. Judge Chapman to mediate unity master lease dispute. This week, Jim is off, so Karen will get you ready for the week ahead. Kicking off the week on Monday, August 5th, Sable Permian's exchange offer is set to expire after the deadline was pushed back several times. Also, we'll be listening to a second quarter earnings call with Diamond Offshore. Tuesday, August 6th, will be a day of many earnings calls. Here's just a taste. Conference calls on quarterly results for Endo, Clearway Energy, Mallinckrodt, Chesapeake Energy, Dean Foods, Avis, Deneas, ADT, APX Group, Frontier Communications, Parker Drilling, and Weight Watchers. We'll also see the expiration of a consent solicitation for Avon. Heading into Wednesday, bankruptcy court nerds and enthusiasts rejoice because we'll be watching a combined disclosure statement and plan confirmation hearing for Monotronics. Also, a sale and plan confirmation hearing for DITEC and a discovery status conference in PG&E. And of course, another helping of earnings with Q2 conference calls for Teva, Sungage, Hertz, Comstock, and Denbury. Thursday, August 8th, brings us the expiration of a covenant waiver for Halcon. Also, commitments are due for a proposed refinancing transaction for DINCORP. In the courtroom, a hearing in the Puerto Rico Title III cases. This time, it's in New York and the PROMESA Oversight Board's lawsuit against the Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority and the Puerto Rico Governor. The court will hear oral argument on the defendant's motion to dismiss. We couldn't end the week without more earnings, so we'll be listening to conference calls on Thursday for Unity, Quorum Health, Bellatrix Exploration, Talon Energy, and LSC Communications. Also, Windstream will release second quarter results and management will provide pre-recorded remarks. And rounding off the week on Friday, another hearing in the PG&E cases. Thanks, Karen. Next, Connor, Sasha, and Karen will discuss opioid litigation highlights. 
I'm here today with the team at Reorg that covers litigation related to the American opioid crisis and the companies in the pharmaceutical supply chain targeted in that litigation. Reporters Sasha Padbidri and Connor Skelding are here to highlight some of the key issues implicated in the opioid litigation and to provide an update on some recent notable events. Reorg Americas analyzes a number of companies impacted by the opioid litigation, including Teva Pharmaceutical Industries, Endo International, Mallinckrodt, and Rite Aid. All of these companies have been named as defendants in opioid lawsuits across the nation. And when we talk about opioid litigation, we're talking about diverse plaintiffs. States, municipalities, counties, tribal nations who have sued in federal and state court as well as diverse defendants. These include manufacturers and distributors of opioids, pharmacies who sell them, and parties that engage in marketing them. And the damages are potentially enormous, possibly amounting to billions of dollars, perhaps many billions. At Reorg to date, we've focused our coverage on what you might call the largest and most mature opioid litigations. That's the multi-district litigation, or MDL, pending in the U.S. District Court in the Northern District of Ohio, which consolidates over 2,000 federal cases. The judge there has called the MDL, quote, the most complex constellation of cases that has ever been filed. Our second focus has been the trial on the Oklahoma Attorney General's public nuisance claim against Johnson & Johnson and its subsidiary, Janssen Pharmaceuticals which concluded last month in state court. So the opioid MDL and the Oklahoma action have been our focal points so far. Here's why. Although most state attorney generals have filed lawsuits related to the opioid crisis, Oklahoma's was the first to go to trial. The Janssen defendants were the only ones left after Oklahoma settled with Purdue Pharma and Teva earlier this year. Sasha will say more on that in a minute and we're now waiting for a decision from that court. And in the MDL in Cleveland, Judge Dan Polster has scheduled a bellwether trial for this October on two consolidated track one cases. A bellwether case is a kind of test case or exemplar. The idea is that the outcome of the bellwether will produce useful information about other cases that have been centralized in the MDL with similar characteristics. The Track 1 Bellwether cases are lawsuits filed by two Ohio counties, the County of Summit and the County of Cuyahoga. There are 11 claims asserted against approximately 23 defendant families in the Track 1 cases. And later on, the court has said it'll hold further Bellwether trials on Track 2 cases coming out of West Virginia. Interestingly, Judge Polster had said that he prefers to see a global resolution of the thousands of cases in the MDL. He said nobody has the ability to try all of these cases. The vast majority will be settled or dismissed, he remarked, and they cannot be settled one by one. The suggestion that a global settlement could happen has inspired many comparisons between this litigation and the tobacco litigation of the 1980s, where tobacco companies settled and agreed to pay over $200 billion to plaintiff states over two decades. But that's the opioid MDL in Ohio, where we're looking ahead to trial. The trial in the Oklahoma AG action, on the other hand, recently concluded. Sasha, can you tell us more about what happened there? Sure. 
Um, Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter's $17 billion public nuisance lawsuit against the J&J and Janssen defendants began in late May and drew to a close in mid-July. Cleveland County District Court Judge Tad Balkman oversaw the trial in Norman, Oklahoma. And in the lawsuit, Oklahoma is seeking funds from Janssen for an abatement plan to remedy the public nuisance allegedly caused by the defendants. Oklahoma's proposed abatement measures would amount to approximately $12.8 billion over a 20-year period, $15.4 billion over a period, a 25-year period, and a $17.8 billion lawsuit over sorry, and $17.8 billion over a 30-year period. Oklahoma initially sued three sets of defendants, the Jensen defendants, the Teva defendants, and the Purdue Pharma defendants. But Jensen is now the only defendant group that hasn't settled with the state. In late June, Judge Balkman approved Oklahoma's $85 million settlement with the Teva defendants. Earlier in the year, the court also approved Oklahoma's $270 million settlement with Purdue. As part of that agreement, Purdue told the Oklahoma Attorney General's office that it will not file for bankruptcy in the near term. So after the trial ended in mid-July, Judge Balkman directed Oklahoma and Janssen to file proposed findings of facts and conclusions of law by the end of the month, and they submitted the briefs earlier this week. The judge said that he expects to take a month to reach a judgment, adding that he'll reconvene court to announce his decision. So right now we're watching out for a decision from Judge Balkman, which should come out at the end of August or the beginning of September at the earliest. Great. Thanks, Sasha. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, Sasha, was that Mike Hunter, the Oklahoma Attorney General, is seeking $17 billion in the lawsuit to fund the state's abatement plan. But you also said that Oklahoma has already settled with Purdue and Teva. So does that make a difference in the relief that Oklahoma is seeking? Yeah, um, that's an interesting issue that came up in closing arguments before Judge Balkman. So Jansen argued that the attorney general was attempting to hold Jansen responsible for the opioid crisis in the state, but hadn't proven that Jansen caused a crisis and should be on the hook for $17 billion. Uh, Jansen argued that having settled with Teva and Purdue, the state is going after Jansen and J&J for its deep pockets, even though Oklahoma hasn't proven causation between Jansen's conduct and the opioid crisis. So counsel for Jansen also asserted that data shows that fentanyl products, such as Jansen's Duragesic, a fentanyl delivery patch, are less frequently abused than oxycodone and hydrocodone products. On the other hand, Oklahoma's position is that the defendants together cause an indivisible injury and that the state can re recover the funds for its abatement plan from Janssen. The state's lawyers also compared the defendants to a kingpin in a Mexican drug cartel working in concert with Purdue and other pharma companies. Counsel for Oklahoma emphasized that two former Johnson & Johnson subsidiaries, Noramco and Tasmanian Alkaloids, made raw materials for some of the products from Purdue and Teva, the selling defendants. And one of the lawyers representing the state argued, quote, contributory negligence is not a defense. In a press conference after the closing arguments, AG Mike Hunter said to journalists, we're in this to win it, and if it requires us to go to subsequent appellate courts, we'll go to those courts and we'll fight until we win. Now let's turn it over to Connor for a discussion of recent developments from the opioid multidistrict litigation in the Ohio District Court. Connor, we're a few months away from the first Bellwether trial in the MDL, and as the parties gear up for that trial, there have been a number of disclosures that have been making the news. These include data as well as documents. What have we learned from that new information? 
Uh, great. Thanks, Karen. So in mid-July, the Washington Post reported on a database maintained by the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, the database is called the Automation of Reports and Consolidated Order System, or RCOS. The paper said that this database tracked every pain pill sold in the U.S. Uh, and detailed nearly 380 million transactions. Uh, the Washington Post looked at shipments uh, of oxycodone and hydrocodone pills to retail pharmacies, chain pharmacies, and practitioners between 2006 and 2012, and found that the top opioid manufacturers for those years were SpecGX, a Mallinckrodt subsidiary, which manufactured 28.8 billion pills, Actavis uh, Pharma, which is now owned by Teva, and that company manufactured 26.4 uh and Par Pharmaceutical, an endo subsidiary, which manufactured 11.9 billion pills. Together, those companies accounted for about 89% of opioids analyzed by the paper for the years 2006 to 2012. And following this news, uh, each company's stocks and bonds traded down. Judge Dan Polster lifted an earlier protective order covering the ARCOS data, and now you can, active, um, you can access that publicly uh, through a link in the docket. Great. Thanks, Connor. So those are some of the key takeaways from the newly revealed DEA data. There were also some documents produced in discovery related to the litigation that have been making the news as well. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Uh, some some email uh, exchanges with Mallinckrodt staff uh, in, in some of those years covered by the RCOS system uh, that, that I think resulted in negative press. Uh, the same paper, the Washington Post, highlighted email exchanges, um, which the paper characterized as showing employees driven by profits and undeterred by the knowledge that their products were wreaking havoc across the country. Uh, there was one exchange between one of Mallinckrodt's uh, most highly compensated national account managers, Victor Borelli, and a contact at a distributor, Key Source Medical, uh, Steve Cochran. After Mallinckrodt had delivered 1,200 bottles of oxycodone, Cochran wrote, according to the brief quote, Keep them coming. Flying out of here. It's like people are addicted to these things or something. Oh, oh, wait. People are. Uh, Barely responded, according to the brief, just like Doritos, keep eating. Uh, we'll make more. In another email to a distributor, according to the brief, uh, Barely asked a client to check its inventory and said, if you're low, order more. If you're okay, order a little more. Capiche? He also joked, according to a brief, that this distributor should, quote, destroy this email. Is that really possible? Oh, well. So on June 28th, the plaintiffs in the, MDL moved, in the MDL moved for partial summary adjudication with respect to the duties of the defendants under the Controlled Substances Act. The plaintiffs argued that the defendants did not comply with their duty, quote, to report suspicious opioid orders and not ship them. Uh, the Borelli emails there were part of the plaintiff's brief in support of the motion. The brief notes that all distributors in question, quote, received substantial amounts of Mallinckrodt products and ultimately had their licenses revoked by the DEA. Under the CSA defendants, that's the Controlled Substances Act, the defendants were obliged to maintain effective controls against diversion. In order to do so, they were required to design and operate systems to identify suspicious orders defined to include orders of unusual size, frequency, or pattern, to report such orders to the DEA, and to refrain from shipping such orders unless and until they were able to confirm that the orders were not likely to be diverted, the plaintiffs wrote in a two-page summary sheet of the issues raised in the motion and brief. The plaintiff said, the undisputed evidence shows that the defendants did none of that. And looking ahead, Karen, uh, there's a hearing on August 6th at 10 a.m. Eastern in front of Judge Polster. That's on a motion filed by a multitude of cities and counties in June asking the court to approve a so-called negotiation class for the purposes of negotiating and settling with defendants, conducting national, nationwide opioid manufacturing, sales, and distribution. 
Back in June, Judge Polster had said that the negotiation class proposed by the cities and counties is a, quote, novel idea. He said the concept had never been tried, but, quote, that does not make it wrong or illegal or incorrect. Uh, Note also that the first bellwether trial is scheduled for October 21st, though this could be settled ahead of then. That's all I've got, Karen. Back to you. We should also mention that there are some issues related to a specific subset of opioid litigation defendants that we really spend a lot of time on at Reorg, and that's the manufacturers of certain generic medications. At Reorg, we cover a number of the generic opioid manufacturers, including Endo Pharmaceuticals, Malincrot, and Teva. Both Endo and Teva acquired manufacturers with Teva's purchase of Octavis in 2016 and Endo purchasing Par Pharmaceuticals in 2015. Like Connor mentioned, according to the Washington Post analysis, these three manufacturers collectively accounted for 89% of the volume of opioids shipped between 2006 and 2012. Malincrot, the largest by volume, shipped 37.7% during that time period. Uh, Just a few words on Malincrot specifically. In late 2018, Malincrot communicated their plan to attempt to shield part of the company from opioid litigation by spinning off their specialty generics business to shareholders. Management said that its intention is to have the associated liabilities for each asset base, follow the respective assets after the spin-off. The, ho- the company said it hopes to complete the spin in the second half of this year. Originally, the spin-off company would also have included Malincrot's Amatiza product, and Reorg estimated that EBITDA at the entity would be between $300 and $350 million, allowing for about $1 billion in debt. However, Malincrot said that Amatiza would stay with the Romanco or specialty brand business. And as a result, the smaller spun company would only be capitalized with $300 million of debt. So it'll be interesting to see how the generics are treated in the MDL and other upcoming litigation. As Sasha mentioned, the different settlements between Purdue, the branded pharmaceutical, and Teva in the Oklahoma lawsuit, you know, were at different levels. And in the MDL, in a summary judgment motion, arguing for the dismissal of false marketing claims uh, against them, these generic manufacturers also emphasized their special position and relationship to other parties in the pharmaceutical supply chain. Uh, Specifically, they said that their business model and their purpose, as established by Congress, really prohibit them from promoting their medicines. Therefore, they can't be accused of false marketing, they said. Uh, These generic manufacturers said there was no promotion, therefore there was no false promotion, and there was no false marketing. And according to these defendants, the plaintiff's own experts have confirmed that physicians are not generally making a decision about one generic versus the other. Instead, the manufacturers say, these generic drugs are generally marketed to wholesalers and drugstores primarily on the basis of price. Lastly, for our discussion today, we'll touch on a topic that subscribers sometimes ask us about, the treatment of opioid claims in Chapter 11, which would generally be viewed as unsecured claims like other kinds of litigation claims. And one example is the INSIS bankruptcy, which uh, Sasha will discuss. 
Right. So one recent bankruptcy in Cis Therapeutics is an example of a company filing for Chapter 11 in the face of mounting opioid litigation claims and using the toolbox of Chapter 11 to undertake a sales process. So Incis filed for Chapter 11 relief shortly after entering into a $225 million opioid litigation settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice. This was over the marketing of Subsys, a fentanyl delivery spray, but the company faced also litigation from a variety of plaintiffs, including states and municipalities and courts across the country. Now that INSYS is in Chapter 11, those lawsuits have been placed on hold due to the automatic stay unless a litigant obtains relief from the stay. Also, the, debt, the debtors negotiated with the DOJ regarding the treatment of the DOJ claim in bankruptcy, agreeing that the United States would have an allowed $243 million unsecured claim capped at a $195 million recovery. The U.S. has also agreed that there will be no successor liability for a Section 363 sales of subsidies. Very important, of course, for a company seeking to sell its assets. The dynamic between the parties in the INSYS bankruptcy case is also interesting. The debtors have entered into an agreed case protocol with the Unsecured Creditors Committee and a number of state attorney generals. That protocol is binding only on those parties, but it contemplates that the debtors and the UCC at least will agree on a plan construct by August 6th and negotiate allocation of estate value by unsecured creditor category. The idea is that this framework would provide an avenue for the treatment of opioid claims as well as other kinds of unsecured claims under a Chapter 11 liquidation plan. Like the opioid MDL and the Oklahoma action, we'll be keeping an eye on progress in this case as well. So thank you so much, Sasha and Connor, for speaking with us today, and we'll go back to Alex in New York. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Alex Brosman.